South Africans go to the polls on 1 November for the local government elections. And one city that will be contested is this city of Cape Town. Joining me on the show today is Jordan Hill Lewis. He is the Democratic Alliance's mayoral candidate for the city of Cape Town. Jordan, welcome to Solutions with David Ansar. Thank you very much, David. Nice to be with you and to all of your viewers and listeners. Great. Jordan, well, maybe we can uh, just start with uh, just looking at the city of Cape Town itself. And obviously, the DA has been in power there since I think it was about 2007 when Helen Zilla first uh, managed to cobble together a, a coalition, or was it 2006? Um, but, yes. you, you know, I, I think that if you look at, for example, Auditor General reports, uh, various service delivery metrics, the DA administration has done better than any other municipality in South Africa. But uh, a lot yet remains uh, to be done. And uh, there are plenty of pretty significant socioeconomic challenges in the city. What are you, what are you going to be bringing uh, to the mayoral office that will be different to your predecessors? Well, I think that introduction is perfectly accurate. Uh, there are still far too many people living in poverty and unemployment in Cape Town, far too many people who still do not have access to the services that they need uh, to live lives of opportunity and dignity. Uh, the What really excites me is that uh, both Alan and I are, are kind of singularly obsessed with economic growth. And I always say that all of South Africa's socioeconomic problems get worse so long as uh, the, the economy is not growing. Every one of them, crime, uh, poverty, and all of its associated ills. But the converse is also true. The, you know, all of these problems get better and easier to solve if you, if you can kickstart rapid economic growth. And so all of the things that I've been talking about so far in this election campaign all contribute and buttress uh, the idea of a faster growing local metropolitan economy that is able to provide more opportunities for people to get out of poverty. And uh, very importantly, is able to provide more resources for the state to, to, uh, to be able to deliver infrastructure and to broaden opportunity for those who do not yet uh, have work. So, so that, you know, every one of the things, the, the kind of seven points that I've spoken about, uh, Fill in that that economic growth vision. So, Jordan, you're a member of parliament currently, and you've been in parliament since 2011. And uh, for many of those years, you were on the trade and industry portfolio committee, and more recently on the finance portfolio committee as well. And yes. you know, I think South Africa's growth trajectory has been pretty stagnant, uh, if not going backwards, over the last 10 years or so. Uh, I mean, before we delve into the minutia of local government. Uh, let's maybe look at the kind of broader macroeconomic picture. I mean, what's happening with South Africa's economy and how is that affecting uh, people of the Western Cape and Cape Town in particular? Yeah, stagnant and retreating. Uh, and, and so what we've seen is the really devastating slow bleed consequences uh, of that for the fiscus. So the fiscus has been under, even before COVID, uh, the fiscus has just been under increasing pressure year after year. And that's been exacerbated by a refusal to stop or get uh, borrowing under control. So to the extent that now uh, interest payments or service, servicing that debt costs us this year 270 billion rand, the third largest item on the budget. And soon, by the end of next year, it will be the second largest item on the budget only 
uh, only smaller than education. Uh, so that has had the consequence. Oh, add to that the you know persistent bailouts of, of failing state-owned companies, and and those that's had the consequence of putting huge pressure on basic services on which the poor uh, and the public at large depend every day for their livelihoods, whether it be health or policing or housing budgets or uh, education budgets, they've all been cut uh, and fairly steep real cuts over the last five years, I would say. That's, that fiscal, that trajectory of fiscal crisis is showing no signs of abating or turning around. In fact, there's you know, the, the, the borrowing trajectory continues to be basically out of control, regardless of, of the stated commitments to get it under control. It is not under control yet. Uh, and that's all been exacerbated by a, a serious growth problem. And the two have, the two have fed into each other. They've been mutually self-reinforcing. Uh, the, the economy is not growing. It is not growing because there is very low business and investor confidence. Uh, there is no fixed capital formation and investment in infrastructure in the economy. And that, again, is because there is very little, uh, there's very little free cash flow in the state. So all in all, this, this is actually a significant part of the reason why I decided to run, uh, because I, I think that the, the economic trajectory at a national level is quite uh, you know, very concerning uh, uh, over the next few years, but that local governments, well-run local governments and assertive local governments have the potential uh, to at least buck that trend in, in some significant ways. And, uh, and, and we can get into the, the ways that that could be possible. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's my impressions of the, of the national economy. So, Jordan, uh, one of the real handbrakes on South Africa's national growth is our energy insecurity. And as yeah. we record this week, uh, they've been rolling blackouts again uh, throughout South Africa. And uh, Cape Town has been uh, affected by that as well, I'm sure. But now, how do we go about uh, de-risking cities like Cape Town from uh, the kind of broader problems in the national economy? And I know that centerpiece of your campaign has been about ending load shedding and maybe trying to take advantage of some of these new regulatory openings, the lifting of the cap on private electricity generation up to 100 megawatts. Uh, how do you propose going about that? What other, um, what, what other obstacles are potentially in your way that you will need to overcome? Yeah, well, the, I think the insight that I had that really uh, convinced me to stand and, and tipped me over the edge on this decision matrix was that you know, for three years, we've been waiting with bated breath for a wide ranging significant reform agenda at a national level, and it isn't coming. And I don't think it's capable of, of arriving under this leadership. Uh, and so the, the economic stag stagnation and uh, lack of progress, I think, will, will continue. So the logical next step from that is, well, how do you insulate, uh, you know, well-run parts of the country from the devastation that, the, that I spoke of earlier, that kind of slow bleed devastation on budgets and services that, uh, that this implies. And the way to do that, I think, is to look at each of the worst handbrakes, as you call it, uh, I think very aptly so, each of the worst handbrakes or, or inhibitors to, to growth and see what can be done about that at a local level. And uh, energy is probably the one where 
there is a lot of scope and, and increasingly so given given the regulatory amendments that you referred to, given uh, the the fact that ESCOM 15 years later is still load shedding the country even right now as we speak. And uh, so I think there's lots of opportunity there to really insulate well-run parts of the country from the worst consequences of, of uh, this, you know, this national state failure or this, uh, this slow collapse and, and backwards sliding, backsliding of, of these essential services. So obviously Cape Town has the Steenbras facility, which I think is a, a hydro plant, uh, which yeah. uh, enables you to kind of create a bit of a buffer. So when the rest of the country is in stage one, you still have, uh, you still have the lights on. But mm. how do you go about this? Um, how do you go about crowding in private generators? Uh, is there sufficient capital available, private enterprises that are willing to, uh, to get involved in this market? The, there is just a flood of very uh, favorable, a flood of money available at very favorable terms uh, for, for these kind of projects. In fact, every time I do an interview about this, uh, almost without exception, I'm contacted by more and more, uh, whether it be foreign governments or foreign investors or local investors who are ready and willing and have all the technological ability and all of the funding already lined up to move into the space. The, the reason for load shedding in South Africa, David, is not uh, a technological shortcoming. It is not a financial shortcoming. It is a political and governance shortcoming. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes me so cross about it, is that it's, there's no good reason uh, for us to, to have load shedding. We understand that it started from a place of a in, insufficient investment in new generating capacity that then created a shortage which persists today. But there is an easily available solution which uh, which the government will not allow South Africans to access because essentially of of politics, and that I find unacceptable, and that's no good reason for a city to stand back and simply wait for national government to solve this. Uh, that's not going to happen. Okay, but nevertheless, uh, these regulatory uh, changes came from the national level from the Department of um, Mineral Resources and Energy. Gwedi Mantash is the minister there. So I mean, in many respects, you are kind of downstream from uh, some of those regulatory bodies that sit in mm. Pretoria. Um, but you know, this is obviously a, a small uh, gap that you can you can take. Uh, but what yes. other ways can you start to more aggressively start to assert the interests of the city uh, and push back against some of these more onerous uh, regulations? Yeah, uh, that's that goes to the heart of my my campaign. So. You know what? What I saw is that there's a, as you say, there's a little opening, there's a little gap. Uh, the door is just ajar on energy, but even so, so you know, let's give credit where it's due. That is a worthwhile and welcome reform, inch an inch forward in the reform agenda. Uh, but even so, the 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 amendments are so unclear and deliberately so, deliberately so so as to frustrate the efforts of, of well-run cities to, to actually reduce their reliance on ESCOM and start buying uh, from independent power producers. Because the, the, the process for actually doing so is still as clear as mud. But nevertheless, the, the door is ajar. And as I've said elsewhere, we've now got to go and push open that door firmly, kick it open, and, and really push the boundaries on uh, on energy 
and not wait passively. This is this is the key thing. Not wait passively for these things to be clarified over time, but actually to clarify them in the act of doing them, uh, and, in to, and to in, in, in that way invite challenge uh, and and use the opportunity of challenge to clarify what the city's powers and rights and responsibilities are in terms of delivering basic services to its customers, the residents. And for me, that goes to, to several other uh, basic service areas as well. So for example, the constitution in schedule four and five uh, includes the phrase uh, metropolitan public transport, but that has never ever been defined. And so cities have just by, by dint of tradition limited their public transport activities to, uh, to you know, what we now call BRT, bus rapid transit, uh, essentially bus systems. But the, that's never really been tested. That's never really been uh, had a had a light shone on what these parts of the constitution actually mean in terms of what local governments can actually do uh, in these in these basic services. So what excites me is that uh, I see the significant parts of the constitution, insofar as it relates to local governments and provincial powers, as only now being. Uh, tested and defined and clarified and explored in a way. And that's very, very exciting as a, as a kind of new phase in, in South African governance. Uh, and so I want to do, do that again, not by standing on the back foot and waiting for these issues to become, uh, to come to court or, or, or to be clarified uh, by national government first, but actually moving forward uh, assertively to go and define them ourselves and on our terms. Uh, and I think that that applies to public transport, it applies to policing, it applies to power uh, and other other areas as well where we have the opportunity to do this. Okay, but now Jordan, I have my constitution here in front of me and I, I hate to be a bit of a wet blanket because this all sounds very good, but section 156 uh, says it 1562 says a municipality may make and administer bylaws for the effective administration of the matters which it has the right to administer. But then mm. subsection three says a bylaw that conflicts with national or provincial legislation is invalid. Uh, so that means that if there is some kind of conflict with another sphere of government, then that other sphere will override the city. Um, so I mean, how do you how do you circumvent some of those those problems? Because I mean, would you need to necessarily go and and litigate, for example, at the constitutional court to to have a ruling on that, or or would you just act and and wait for the inevitable reaction from national? Uh, so you know, the constitution also says that uh, uh, local and provincial governments need to take uh, means necessary to deliver services uh, to their residents. And the, the services that are essential for residents uh, are some of those services which national government is just blatantly failing to deliver, like adequate policing and uh, electricity and public transport system, rail transport. So I do believe, yes, uh, that there will have to be some really defining uh, court battles and challenges to shine a torchlight into these parts of the constitution and check exactly what they mean and have them defined. But I'm I am far from certain that the that the law is uh, so unambiguously on the side of the national government. 
if you look around the country, what is happening, we're also seeing a change in the kind of judicial environment where uh, ratepayers' bodies, for example, are, are winning the legal rights to deliver services in their towns uh, because the local government is failing so spectacularly. We've even had NGOs like Gift of the Givers winning legal rights to deliver services in towns where local government has failed spectacularly. So I think that if we had tried this 10 years ago, and some people often ask me why, why is the DA doing this now, but I, I actually think that if we had tried this 10 years ago, and we did start uh, you know, the steps in the right direction then, but it was a very a different judicial environment, and these services were not at such an advanced stage of total collapse. And I think that really is the key uh, uh, differentiator now that makes this a much more fruitful environment for, for us to press this advantage. And Jordan, speaking of state collapse, one of the areas in which the state has been so woefully absent is in safety and security. And mm -hmm. a couple of months ago, we saw the July riots uh, in KZN and Gauteng, utter devastation. I read somewhere that these were the most costly riots globally the last 10 years, billions of dollars worth of damage. Um, but you know, in your own city of Cape Town, there are some significant challenges in terms of community safety, uh, areas like uh, Lunga, Mitchell's Plain, Kailicha, and again, the, the uh, division of powers that the constitution prescribes uh, limits uh, formal policing of the, the province to uh, the SAPs to the national police, uh, but you've uh, piloted some some interesting uh, uh, initiatives. I say you, but the, the DA administration in, in Cape Town, yeah. uh, the Leap program, for example. Um, how are you going about surmounting these very significant social problems uh, in, in uh, some of the kind of less uh, well-off areas of Cape Town? Yeah, I mean that this is absolutely critical because it's top of mind for most Cape Townians is is safety and security. And, uh, you know, the fact is that even before uh, the, this with, with withdrawal of additional resources from Cape Town, police resources, Cape Town already had the lowest police to citizen ratio in the country, regardless of what Becky Tele says, the, the facts are there and, and speak for themselves. In some parts of the city, like parts that I've visited this week in Grassy Park, for example, which is a murder hotspot, the police to citizen ratio is one quarter of what it should be, one fourth of what it should be. Uh, totally unacceptable under resourcing. And on top of that, over the last two years, SAPS has withdrawn 551 uh, police officers from this uh, from from Cape Town. So, so the you know that goes to the 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 shrinking of resources at a national level that is affecting every basic service. So I'm not sure whether that withdrawal of resources is malice or whether it is just a reflection of the general uh, uh, pressure that all police resources are under nationally. Certainly, if one looks at the disaster that happened in KZN, there was a, a near complete absence of the state, uh, you know, an utter collapse of, of law and order, uh, where the state was just totally absent from its, from its most basic function. And so, you know, the, I think that the, the DA went, the DA government in, in Cape Town and the Western Cape went through a time where we uh, were pointing out this failure and asking and pleading for a proper allocation of resources to the Western Cape and to Cape Town. 
And it's absolutely right that we continue to do so because, it, as you say, it is their primary responsibility. But we've also now actually, and this is where I think we've already demonstrated what is possible, we've gone and we've said, actually, we're going to move into the space boldly and assertively, and we're going to do a lot more of this for ourselves. And so here we are in Cape Town rolling out 1,100 uh, law enforcement officers with, uh, you know, with wide-ranging policing powers, uh, and we are just getting the job done and, and keeping communities safer. Uh, we are rolling out a gang and drug units, a specialist canine unit, with, uh, which is having tremendous results, a specialist metal theft unit, far outside of the scope of traditional municipal law enforcement, but basically extremely effective and getting the job done. And what is, uh, and what is the legal basis for, for, this, uh, for this initiative, Jordan? I mean, what does Becky Taylor think of, of this initiative? Can, can he stop it if he, if he so chose? I invite him to try uh, to, you know, to stop us trying our very best to keep Cape Townians safer. Uh, I'm not sure that he wants to be on that side of that fight. So he hasn't, he hasn't tried yet, despite a lot of bluster and saber rattling around the so-called single police service. But, you know, the, basically the case that he's made is, is the ANC's direction is exactly the opposite. They want, to, they want to create what they call the single police service, where essentially the law enforcement function would be removed from local governments and would be subsumed into, uh, into a, a single national police force. This we think would be absolutely uh, contrary to every uh, demonstration of successful policing in Cape Town and uh, would be a disaster for, for residents and not just for Cape Town, across the country, by the way, which is why everyone should resist that call and support the devolution of, of police. We actually think that, you know, and, we, and we've been calling for, for more police control to be devolved. So this extends into something else that I'm, that I'm also very excited about, and that, that's all of the things that we've tried so far do not extend into the investigation realm. Uh, we don't have any detective and investigation uh, powers. And yet here we are actually on the ground working very well with, with SAP's precincts and SAP's detectives to help investigate cases and get higher prosecution uh, numbers. Because of course, regardless of what we do fighting crime on the ground. If, if everyone gets off when they enter the criminal justice system, then there's no deterrent at all. So we are actually helping uh, the SAPS detective branch to, to properly investigate these cases and get prosecutions. And we're doing that from, the, uh, you know, from our interventions on the ground. And so everything that Becky Tseli says about, uh, about us undermining the police is actually only refers to himself because actually at ground level, we're working extremely well with local precinct commanders. And I visited one the other day who I won't name uh, because they, you know, these guys get targeted by national SAP's head office when they say anything supportive about us. Uh, but but a, a, a very senior member of the SAPs in a, in a murder hotspot uh, area in Cape Town said his only message to us is, please, can we deploy more of these law enforcement officers to his area because they are making such a massive positive difference. Uh, so I'm encouraged by, by things like that. Yeah, and one of the side effects of the rampant criminality around South Africa and in Cape Town as well is the destruction of infrastructure. So we've seen a lot of our yeah. rail network being denuded by uh, people uh, stripping those assets for, for scrap metal, for example, 
Uh, we've seen uh, outright vandalism and looting of, of trains, burning of trains in Cape Town in particular. Do you think that there's yeah. a political motive behind that? Uh, and you know, how are you going to be able to protect some of the, that infrastructure in the city? Oh, this is an absolute, uh, this has also reached kind of pandemic levels. And I've been out on patrol the last few weeks with our specialist metals theft unit here in Cape Town, which is having to deal with just tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of rands of infrastructure that is being stripped. Any, basically anything with any street resale value is, is no longer safe. And I, I don't think that that's politically motivated. I think that that's just an indication of of the drastic, dramatic uh, uh, increase in poverty over the last two years, where people are so desperate for, for little bits of cash that they are even prepared to steal infrastructure and destroy infrastructure, dig up cables, which is often dangerous, uh, to, to get their hands on, on a little bit of, of cash. Uh, but then there are some really massive and much more devastating uh, cases of infrastructure destruction where for example train infrastructure has has been destroyed to the point where cape town's train system like like others around the country is barely functional anymore and that's there really does seem to be an element of of deliberate sabotage there uh, there's no there's no there's no immediate cash reason or poverty motivated reason to burn billions of rands worth of infrastructure in, in, in train set, sets and so on. Uh, so the, the real motives behind these things require a very thorough investigation. But on the face of it, one is it, it's very hard to escape the conclusion that there must be an ulterior motive. Okay, so I mean, just getting back to the riots for a second, uh, a couple of months ago, in the immediate aftermath of the chaos of July, we had uh, Khirin Yubeir, who's a fellow Cape Townian of yours, I'm based in Joburg. But uh, yeah, and he was talking about the importance of community safety initiatives. Uh, you know, the city can only do so much as, as well as SAPS as well. Uh, are you going to be exploring any ways in which you can get communities more involved in, in protecting their own uh, families and communities more broadly? Uh, and how could you go about helping them? Oh, well, actually, I think this is, thank you for asking that question. This is a huge part of our success already. Is, is not, it's, it's not just based on us investing in more boots on the ground. It is based on brilliant, brilliant uh, volunteerism and organization by communities with, uh, with the support of the DA governments here in the city and in the province to provide training, uh, to provide equipment, bicycles, radios, uh, torches, sometimes control rooms, uh, and and very importantly, also uh, you know camera technology, a huge rollout of camera technology, but really the whole thing is built on this this volunteer spirit of of committed residents and and community members who are prepared to devote, give up hours of their time every week or, or month, to go out on patrol to attend training. And uh, one of the best parts of this campaign has been to spend time on the road with many neighborhood watchers across the city. And I'm in awe of the work that they do. And of course, we are extremely grateful to them and indebted to them uh, for the work that they do. And we've got some tremendous success stories. We've got, uh, you know, I, I visited the Strand Neighborhood Watch, which has a thousand paid up members and over 200 active patrollers in a, in a you know, a, a relatively small part of the city, uh, 
probably undoubtedly the biggest in the city, probably one of the biggest and most active neighborhood watches in the country. So, and these are all driven by just active citizens who are prepared to actually offer up their time and skills. Uh, and that has been a huge part of our success. I've been to visit neighborhood watches in, in some really rough neighborhoods who've raised their own money to, to install uh, you know, control centers for, for cameras, who pay staff to monitor those control centers 24 hours a day, uh, and who are, who are just moving in there and getting things done. And I, I'm hugely admiring of their efforts. And where we can support them, we must absolutely do so as much as possible. Yeah, and uh, many people might describe them as heroes, uh, Jordan, uh, which uh, reminds they, they me of, of, of a, a controversy that recently uh, engulfed the party. Uh, your colleagues in KZN put up posters saying that the ANC calls you racist, the DA calls you heroes. Um, and, you know, obviously there's still a lot of questions being asked around some of the vigilante action that uh, was taken uh, against some of these rioters and still a lot of evidence needs to emerge. But I mean, what was your view on this campaign? Because it certainly got people talking and certainly played to some of the, the issues that were arising in KZN. Look, David, you know, the, the, in this campaign, we had a really compelling message, uh, which is one of the clearest messages we've had in, in, uh, in an election campaign in, in a long time. Because the difference is so stark in South Africa between those parties that can actually deliver, uh, you know, almost exclusively the DA and the, and the ANC's track record. And so that was our message. And so I, whatever intention was behind that, uh, that mini campaign in KZN, uh, that, that poster, it ended up being a huge distraction from our main compelling message and, uh, you know, knocked the campaign off kilter for a few days. Um, and so it's, it's preferable to just stick to the main aim of the campaign, which is to point out that there, are, there really is only one party that has demonstrated an ability to govern well at a local level, and that is the DA. Jordan, I think another really significant issue is around housing. And uh, as yeah. Cape Town succeeds relative to, to other cities uh, or regions of South Africa, so many more people uh, flood to the city looking for opportunity that puts enormous pressure on public resources um, particularly housing and things like water reticulation uh, so the city could almost be a victim of its own success in that regard what steps are you going to be taking to try to uh, alleviate some of those pressures yeah this is a really interesting issue and, and one that has come to really uh, in a sense, dominate the Cape Town campaign. And I'm glad, actually. Uh, you know, I always thought it was a sort of regret that the party in Cape Town, the Cape Town government, allowed itself to be painted as anti-affordable uh, housing by a certain group of activists uh, on the organized left. When, when you know, that's, not, that's actually not the truth. Uh, the truth is that if you are concerned about poverty in South Africa, then... Uh, and you're concerned about broadening opportunity and breaking the cycle of intergenerational poverty, then you have to be concerned about broadening access to uh, to housing opportunities and particularly title. Title, you know, the the this is something that we we should be absolutely at the forefront of as a liberal political party is 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 uh, breaking that cycle of intergenerational poverty by giving people real title to uh, to to land and property. 
And so, you know, I'm proud of the fact that we uh, we have ended the practice of stopping people from owning their uh, their so-called RDP houses or, or what are now called BNG houses, essentially government subsidized houses, and that where where we do govern uh, a, a BNG house is accompanied by full title. Uh, and where we where we have land assets at our disposal, but we have a great shortage of uh, of financial resources to deliver the housing supply necessary to meet the massive demand, we should absolutely leverage those assets to allow them to get out there uh, and be used to develop uh, to develop more affordable accommodation for Capetonians. So I, you know, I came right out of the blocks in this campaign and said I'm not going to allow this to continue to be a weakness uh, held against the DA. In fact, we're going to turn it into a strength. And if we do win, uh, uh, hopefully with with the support of, of everyone, we will win on the first of November. Then we are going to turn this into a strength for for the party and for the city over the coming years by releasing that well-located land. There's one other point to make though, and that is that. The era of mass delivery of state subsidized housing is actually drawing to a close because the state is, is slowly going bankrupt. So you're seeing these sharp cuts in, in, uh, in housing budgets over, over recent years, and those cuts will continue. And that means we're going to have to increasingly look to uh, using other state assets that we can leverage properly for the private sector to fund and deliver a more affordable accommodation. And I think that that's exciting. It's a change in the model, uh, but there's lots of opportunity to, to supply the affordable housing that Capetonians obviously demand. Uh, there is very, very healthy demand out there, but there has been a market failure in that uh, the, the market is unable to deliver housing uh, at the price at which uh, many Capetonians are able to pay. And that is where you, you get to the discussion around social housing. And I think that there are models out there that can deliver social housing at a much more affordable price and that those should be explored using state-owned land. So would you consider selling off uh, some of the assets that the city holds in order to you know, make room for some of that social housing, privatize some of that, that land? Yes, absolutely, I would. You know, the, there's no point in holding on to it because, as I said, the city increasingly cannot afford the state at every level increasingly cannot afford to do, do these housing developments themselves. So there's going to have to be a much more creative look at the model. And I think social housing is one of the ways in which you can provide very affordable accommodation for people using leveraging state assets, but not costing the state an arm and a leg. And I, I think that should be done. And could you see a legal pushback against that? I think there was the uh, the, the case of the uh, Reclaim the City, I think it was, uh, one of the movements, uh, I think it was the Phyllis Giles School, I, I can't remember the details of the case, but uh, I seem to recall that it was creating uh, complications in terms of uh, selling off some of those assets. Yeah, there's that, and there's also invasions that have taken place. Some of these activist groups have actually actively encouraged and supported uh, occupation of, of identified buildings. And there are several hundred families living in those buildings now, which makes it almost impossible to develop them or leverage them for more affordable housing for for the broader Cape Town community. Uh, and obviously, that you know that that slows down the process drastically because you then have to go through a, a, a full eviction process and so on. 
So yes, there will definitely be be fights, but I actually think, and and I have a meeting with them coming up in a few days, which I really look forward to. I actually think that there is there are some points of agreement, uh, and that we should focus on those and see how we can build on those. Uh, and the agreement, should, I think, the, the the most important area of agreement is that the DA absolutely supports the idea that uh, people should be allowed to access accommodation close to economic opportunities, not not in distant, uh, kind of disconnected neighborhoods and townships. And they should have title to those assets so that you can really uh, make it make a lasting impact on on uh, on poverty and and opportunity. Um, and I, th I think that that we, we might we may find some points of agreement between us and them uh, on those on those matters. So, so Jordan, what about the cost of living in the city, particularly for some of the kind of higher income or middle class yeah. uh, uh, residents, uh, many of whom have come from other parts of the country as well. So it's not just uh, kind of poor South Africans who have who are making their way to Cape Town. Um, mm. You know, just from some of the chats that I've had with friends who live in the city, uh, they, um, you know, are saying that, you know, the cost of, of rates have gone up, uh, particularly since the drought. Uh, and then during the COVID crisis, there was a, a bit of a, a deterioration in the quality of the services, but those are now kind of coming back. Um, do you think that there's any space for, for a rates cut to uh, ease the burden on ratepayers who may be kind of feeling the pinch? Look, I'm I'm committed to always keeping the, uh, the the rates burden, the tax burden for residents as low as is responsibly and feasibly possible, uh, given the massive needs uh, in in terms of free basic services and infrastructure rollout that the city has in poorer parts and and uh, to and for uh, poorer residents. So you know, absolutely, the city must spend efficiently and i'm very interested in doing a full comprehensive spending review in the city as as we've been calling for in the national treasury for years uh, we must practice as we preach uh, to check whether we are getting uh, full value for money and to look for every opportunity to to keep rates increases as low as possible uh, I, we absolutely understand that many millions of South African families are going through incredibly tough times financially. Uh, there is no spare cash uh, lying around in, in, uh, in families' bank accounts at the moment. And uh, we have to be extremely respectful of, of public money. At the same time, uh, you know, a proper, a proper comparison shows that Cape Town's rates are actually still among the cheapest of any of the metros in the, in the country. Uh, and really, the major burden on families is the price of electricity in South Africa. That is the largest part of any person's monthly uh, rates and rates and service charges account. And that is because ESCOM has increased its prices 500% over the last 15 years since load shedding started, and uh, and is still doing so now. We've we, you know we have 15% increases scheduled for the next three years running on top of each other. So it's just compounding and compounding. So that makes what I've said about reducing reliance on ESCOM over time and investing in much, much cheaper renewables uh, all the more urgent because then we can start to hopefully pass on those savings to consumers uh, over time. Uh, but rest assured, 
that, you know, this is not a kind of tax and spend uh, government. It is a government that respects public money absolutely and that understands that every cent uh, raised by uh, the government is, you know, is taxed from hardworking families and hardworking South Africans and Capetonians, and that it should be spent very carefully and judiciously and uh, with the greatest value for money. So Jordan, earlier in the conversation, you were saying that you're obsessed with economic growth and obviously business is a big driver of economic activity. And you want to make the city of Cape Town a hub for business in South Africa. Uh, how would you go about doing that? And how would you elevate the standard? Uh, because it seems that, uh, I, I think I read somewhere that, you know, if you compare yourself to the rest of South Africa and you're above average for South Africa, uh, you're actually not doing that well. You're doing only well in relative terms. So how, how do you yes. make a, the city a world-class attractive destination for investment? Yes, yeah, so we must lift our sights and, and raise our standards and, and you know, measure, measure ourselves globally, not domestically, because uh, as you rightly said, you know, the, there's no consolation in being above average in South Africa when, when average is, is so abysmally bad. Uh, and even on the continent, you know, it's, it, we, we, can't, we cannot be happy to be there or thereabouts, uh, and in some cases behind cities like, uh, like Nairobi for ease of doing business. So South Africa is obsessed with red tape. We have, you know, in some cases, really onerous and over-the-top uh, regulation. And it is very difficult for businesses to do business in, uh, in South Africa. And we've got to just go through those with a fine-tooth comb and all of the areas where there is uh, responsibility of the local government for some of that red tape and regulation to make sure that it is... Firstly, uh, digitally, those, that regulation is, is digitally accessible so that it is quick and easy as possible and where it's unnecessary to, to get rid of it or simplify it or modernize it. Uh, and so, you know, I've spoken a lot about this, this, this concept of, of digital first, where as much of our uh, regulatory requirements, licensing requirements and so on are easily and simply accessible online uh, so that no one ever has to waste time uh, take de taking days out of running their small business to go and stand in a queue for some uh, you know obscure license or, or permit or something uh, so that we, we, there's still a lot of progress we can make on on ease of doing business and friendliness to business i think as you say we already are the best in the country but we can now set our sights on, on Auckland and Sydney and Melbourne and uh, Sao Paulo and Brazil and, and um, you know, all over the world. We can say there's no reason. There's nothing that they have that we do not have. Uh, we've just got to focus on these problems and, uh, and get it sorted. And Jordan, also in the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned Alan Windy, the Premier of the Western Cape. And how do you foresee the city interacting with other organs of state, like uh, the province, uh, you know, institutions like Wesgro are there to kind of drive, uh, you know, investment uh, through collaborating across these various spheres of government. Uh, what is your relationship like with those other spheres of government? Excellent. Uh, and I'm very excited to work with them. Uh, you, uh, you know, it really is an exciting aspect of this job. Uh, if we are successful on the 1st of November, that I, that I will be able to work with Alan, who shares my love of the economy and my passion for economic growth. 
and who shares my commitment to making this place the friendliest place to do business on the continent. And, you know, we've got to, uh, Alan, Alan has got the structure which he calls the economic war room, which was supposed to bring the city and the province together to solve some big economic problems. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm absolutely committed to that methodology and to getting it up and running again in a productive way that sees progress. And uh, the same goes with, with Westgrove. You know, between us and the province, we have a $10 billion US dollar annual budget. We have enormous uh, policy leverage. We have regulatory uh, leverage. And we have this brilliant global brand that, that, uh, that gives us huge uh, leverage as well. So we, I think that we have the ingredients. We also, we also have the DA. We are well governed. We, we have a political party that is ambitious and wants to grow this part of the country rapidly. Uh, and so I'm very, very positive and optimistic for that relationship for the future uh, and can't wait to, to really get stuck into some of these economic problems and how to make them simpler. Right. But now I think the, the DA has been enormously popular in the Western Cape and uh, you know, multiple successive elections, uh, voters in the Western Cape turn out in support for the party. Uh, but there is an emerging uh, group, the Cape Independence Advocacy Group, and we actually had Phil Craig on the, the podcast. And you know, they're arguing for wholesale secession from the Republic. So they want the Western Cape to go its own way. They believe that the Western Cape has its own uh, unique uh, set of uh, demographic dynamics, uh, social dynamics, and that clearly ANC governance is not, uh, not suitable uh, for them. And they point to all of the various examples of state failure that we've discussed today as, as reasons for wanting to, uh, to move along. I mean, I'm more of a federalist. I'm a big a proponent of devolution of power and, uh, yes. and, and, uh, and, and decentralization and subsidiarity, um, because I think local communities are usually very much attuned to the needs of their uh, particular constituencies. Um, but I mean, it seems like Cape Independence is, is growing um, uh, as a movement. And how are you responding to them, to, the, to their needs? I see that the DA is now uh, pushing for provincial referendums. Uh, there was a recent private members bill in parliament. So. Uh, are you concerned about this uh, this growing movement for Cape Independence? I think it is gr growing very rapidly in popularity. I understand where the emotional impetus comes from. It's it comes from a an honest assessment of what's happening in South Africa and a real concern about the direction of the country and the future of the country. Uh, I also see it as I've said that I think I said to uh, in a previous interview that I see it also as a a massive compliment uh, of the DA's uh, record in government because it's you know it's very deliberately a uh, a way of trying to insulate residents here from the worst effects of ANC government and the collapse that one sees. I must say to you that I I don't support the the call. Um, I've I've said that uh, openly to to all involved. I'm still a, a very passionate South African, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm fighting for devolution because I, I really believe that 
devolution is one of the best ways to make South Africa as a country succeed uh, because these services, the, this, this outdated model of these enormous, bulky, cumbersome uh, governments, central governments, uh, institutions trying to deliver services across the length and breadth of the country, I think that that's a totally outmoded uh, model that whose time, you know, is it, it's past its sell-by date. Uh, it's a kind of 20th century model. And so I think that increasingly over the next 10 years, and hopefully I, you know, I can I can play a leading role in that, the more and more basic services are going to be delivered by competent local governments and provinces. Uh, and that I, you know, I see impetus in that direction, even in some ANC governments uh, who who must be just as fed up with the, the total collapse of all of this national infrastructure uh, as as every resident is. So, for example, you've seen noises from the, the the new mayor of Johannesburg about about reducing reliance on ESCOM and and going uh, going off grid as well. So, I, I definitely think that's the future trend, and and so I'm pushing for devolution. I don't think that the the independence is is feasible uh, or desirable, and um, and you know what's what's important for me is to protect residents now from the consequences of of ANC failure, and the best way to do that is uh, is to fight for devolution, uh, to devolve these powers to the, the lowest level of competent government. Of course, that's not to say that I'm necessarily right. As as I've also said elsewhere, they, those people are free and welcome to carry on pushing for for what they want, and and time will tell. But for now, my focus is going to be on these particular services and how to protect people from uh, from ANC failure. And the DA has agreed to push for a, a referendum. That's part of their uh, manifesto. Am I correct? Hmm. Correct. Correct. That that uh, that bill is before Parliament. Okay. And uh, is the the party itself agnostic on the question of of Cape Independence? So they push for the referendum, but not say whether or not they would support the the note the, the motion, if you will. Sure, David. I I don't know if the party's expressed itself on this. Uh, my my assessment is that it has actually said that it supports. You know, it's it's proposing this bill for referendum, but does not support independence, um, and and would vote no. So, Jordan, I mean, maybe uh, we could also just turn the conversation towards a more personal note. And you know, for those of our viewers and listeners who who might not uh, have encountered you before, um, maybe if you could tell us, you know, what got you interested in politics in the first place, in public service. Uh, you've indicated that you're passionate about the economy. Uh, but but what's kind of driving you to to get involved in the way that you that you are? Sure. So uh, I was I'm originally from Plett in the Southern Cape. Uh, my folks split when I was very young, and and uh, I moved to Cape Town and have lived here in the northern suburbs of Cape Town ever since. Uh, in a in a place called Edgemead, I uh, got involved in politics very young at high school already. I went to a really wonderful high school with wonderful teachers. A, a, you know, normal state school, Edgemead High School, but but blessed with incredible teachers who introduced me to critical thinking and to liberal politics and to liberal figures and writers uh, in South Africa's political history, and uh, really just just you know kickstarted the thought process in my brain. It was also a time when 
South Africa was going through some really fascinating debates uh, in the early 2000s between uh, Tony Leon and, and Thabo Mbeki on HIV and AIDS and Zimbabwe. And uh, uh, what was the other issue they were fighting about? Oh, you know, the, the kind of re-racialization re of the ANC and, and of politics in South Africa. So these things fascinated me. And I sat there in high school following these debates very closely, uh, reading everything that, that Tony was putting out, uh, extremely impressed by the values that the DA espoused and realized that these, even if I couldn't describe them uh, philosophically, that these values accorded with, with the things that I believed and, and felt uh, as a young South African. Uh, and, and so decided to join the party in matric. Uh, and really, you know, from then, uh, just dived in uh, with, with, with everything and, and went to UCT started the DA student organization DASO at, at UCT and then I was involved in building it across the country. Loved student politics uh, to the detriment of my studies, I must say, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and got really, really involved in that. And then uh, the, the opportunity came uh, after my honors degree to, uh, to work for the party in the research office uh, and I jumped at the chance. And then eventually went to work for Helen and followed that route as a, as a political staffer and researcher and chief of staff until I, I ran for office. Well, yeah, Jordan, I was at UCT at a similar time to you. And I remember uh, after some of the politics lectures, you used to always go up to the, to the lecturer and, and give your counter view. So I always admired your tenacity. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the DA uh, didn't have much of a presence there on campus and and so you really elevated uh, the profile of the party. So, yeah, I, I didn't suspect that uh, one day you'd be running for the mayor, mayoralship of Cape Town, but I, I knew that you were heading somewhere. Neither did I, but thank you. I, I, I remember those days very, very fondly. What a, what a brilliant training, uh, training ground for, uh, for electoral politics. So now, Jordan, uh, you and I are both liberal Democrats, and you know, part of liberal democracy is competitive politics and... Uh, also, not just what happens during election cycles, but between election cycles, accountability, uh, other other things like the rule of law, other democratic institutions. Uh, how do you think uh, liberal democracy is going in South Africa, constitutional democracy? Because I watched your interview with uh, Roman Kabernak, and he was uh, kind of saying that you know this whole project is, is basically falling apart, and uh, that he thinks democracy is overrated. Uh, what is your uh, kind of feeling about why democracy is an important project in South Africa and uh, why is it so important, you know, just given our history and also given where we are at the moment? Oh, no, I'm still a passionate believer in liberal democracy and, and I'm a firm liberal Democrat. Uh, you know, in a, in a society as diverse and conflicted as ours and with such a difficult history, I think liberal democracy is really the only model for the peaceable uh, resolution of differences and the agreement on a uh, on a kind of national set of values and a national aspiration that uh, that allows for a shared prosperity and, and coexistence and and uh, you know a sense of a sense of nationhood. So so no, I still very much believe in that project. I, I realize though that it is under tremendous strain. Uh, because of the failure of to grow the economy, I think primarily, 
the failure to grow the economy has has shaken everyone's trust in democratic institutions uh, because people just feel that life is getting constantly harder that there are no opportunities for them or for their children uh, and that you know this this uh, this project is heading in the wrong direction add to that the insult of of uh, of corruption and and really people start to lose hope in the democratic project but i have not yet and uh, i'm trying very hard to to use this platform in cape town to to restore that sense of optimism about south africa's future and about uh, our democratic project and i think for a long time many people conflated the idea of democracy with anc governance and as anc governance has failed they've also said well okay democracy has has failed by extension Maybe what we need yeah. is a replacement of the incumbent ruling party uh, with yes. something else. Um, and, you know, that may that's, be that's, coalitions, for example. Yeah, and that's that's what's really, uh, really exciting about the next uh, decade or so of South African politics is that I have no doubt it's now basically inevitable that sometime in the next decade, the ANC will fall below 50%. It, it may even be as soon as... November the 1st, for the very first time, they, they may fall below 50%. They may be just above, but, but you know, they're there or thereabouts. Uh, and that will be an absolute watershed moment because that will truly force, focus everyone's attention on the age of uh, coalitions, the looming age of coalitions. And of course, then the discussion turns immediately to, are there any reliable, uh, truly trustworthy liberal democratic coalition partners in South Africa. They really are a paucity of, of uh, reliable coalition partners, as we found in Johannesburg uh, and, and so on. And, and so, you know, that's going to be a very interesting new phase in our, in our country and one that I really look forward to. Uh, it really certainly is going to shake things up. Well, I think it's going to be a fascinating decade ahead. Jordan Hill-Lewis, thank you very much for joining me on Solutions with David Ansara and all the best with your campaign. And uh, hopefully we will have you back on the show sometime soon to discuss these issues in a bit more detail. Thank you very much. Been really great fun and I'm happy to come back uh, anytime. If you enjoyed this content and you're watching on YouTube, please do give this video a like and subscribe to the channel. And if you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, please also subscribe there and leave a five-star review. It really helps the show to grow. My name is David Ansara. Until next Sunday, take care.